Philippi was a very, very unique city, okay? What made it unique is that the city of Philippi was a Roman colony. Why does that matter? Because it was a Roman colony, it was literally Rome in the midst of, the, of, of Asia, okay? Asia Minor. It was right there. So when you went to Philippi, you went to Rome. Philippi was Rome, okay? The architecture was Roman. The culture was Roman. The language was Roman. The dress was Roman. The laws were Roman. It was a small Rome. And so if you wanted to know what Rome was like, but you couldn't get to Rome, all you had to do was go to Philippi, all right? And the people that Rome sent to colonize Philippi, they became Roman citizens, all right? So a lot of them, they didn't, uh, they didn't have Roman citizenship. And Rome said, you're going to go and you're going to colonize. And hey, one of the benefits you get is you will have full Roman citizenship and the rights and privileges that come with that, okay? So why does this matter today for us? Because when Paul is talking to the people of Philippi, he uses the imagery of the colony, okay? He uses the imagery of citizens, and so we as Christians and we as the church are colonists. We are ambassadors, representatives of the kingdom of God in this world. And the church, and I'm not talking just about a church building, but the church is the body of Christ. The church is a microcosm it's supposed to be, of the kingdom of God. So that when the outside world comes into the colony, what they should see is a picture of heaven. They should hear the heavenly language. They should hear the heavenly heartbeat. They should see a life and a culture and a way of thinking that is vastly different from the world in which they live. Because we are a different people. We are a colony spread throughout this world. And we are citizens of the kingdom of God with all the rights and privileges of the kingdom. And so we want to keep this in mind because as I thought about this, you know, it's like, what, what do people see when they come into, let's say, church, all right, the building and the gathering of the saints? What do they see? When, when we worship, all right, so picture, picture revelation and the worship that goes on in heaven, all right? And then step into your local church, which is a colony a microcosm, what do we see as far as worship is concerned? Do we see a taste of what we see in Revelation? Or when Nehemiah had rebuilt the, the wall and Jerusalem had been rebuilt, remember how the elders and the priests and the Levites all gathered around uh, up, up on the, the wall surrounding Jerusalem. And as they worshiped and they praised God, the sound of it just went on and on and people could hear it for a long distance away. Or when the foundation of the temple was laid by Zerubbabel, when they came back from the exile and there was such a commotion of worship and praise, there were also those who wept because they had seen the original, okay, uh, Solomon's temple and they're like oh this is nothing like it but there was such this this commotion that it was heard for a long distance off you go by you know let's say I don't even know that forgive me I don't know the name of Packer Stadium okay 
um, or Brewer Stadium? Uh, I, I don't know. Okay, I know uh, I've driven by the American family, and I guess the Brewers are there, right? If you're outside that stadium during a game, can you hear the, the volume of the people in there? Yeah, you can. All right. What do, what do people see with the worship within the church? Is it a picture, a taste of heaven? What do they see the way that we treat one another? What do they hear as far as the language of the church? Do they hear beauty and love and compassion and kindness and gentleness and see the fruit of the Spirit? Or do they see something different? Do they see things that are more like the world rather than heaven? We need to ask ourselves these things. And I have to ask myself, when they look at me, do they see a citizen of heaven? Do they see an ambassador of Christ? Do they see somebody who talks differently, thinks differently, acts differently in a good way? Or do they see somebody that's no different from themselves? Maybe even worse than themselves. We are colonists. And so what we look at in Philippians shows us the body life, the Christian life, church life. And we see it filled out even more in 1 Timothy as Paul is instructing the young pastor in helping get church dynamics and church leadership in order. And Titus, another young pastor who is given the responsibility to kind of rein in crazy Crete. Crete was a really wild place. And so he was sent there by Paul to get the leadership and the stability of the church in order. So we're going to see what body life, what colony life is like for the body of Christ. So chapter 1, verse 27, the book of Philippians. Only let your manner of life be worthy. Stop. Manner of life be worthy. When I see worthy, I always have these thoughts of, am I worthy? I'm not worthy. I'm no good, Lord. I fail. I mess up. Worthy. What, what is this worthy? What's it talking about? What the phrase means is literally live as citizens. Okay, there's that colony mindset. We're going to see that fleshed out a little bit more later on. So let your manner of life be worthy or live as citizens of the gospel of Christ. Live like what you are, okay? So that when I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm with one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Okay, the doctrines, the teaching of the gospel, the faith, all right? And not frightened in anything by your opponents. So remember, they are a colony in the midst of a different environment, okay? They are, they are, they're not like what's around them. You know, remember the old Sesame Street? Which one of these things is not like the other? Philippi was not like the other cities around there, okay? It's different. And so when he says striving side by side, that's an athletic term, okay? Picture the folks out on the football field, okay? Side by side, we have a goal. We have a purpose. We have an agenda. We have a drive. Side by side, together, in unison, we will work to achieve the goal, all right? What's the goal? To maintain the faith. All right, to keep things pure, to live as that, that colony, to keep pure as who they are in Christ. Not to be conformed to the image of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of the mind. That's what the Bible tells us about. We want to have the mindset of Christ, the life of Christ. We don't want to be conformed because we are citizens of a different world. Okay? and not frightened by anything by your opponents. As a colony of heaven, as citizens of the kingdom of God, we have opponents. 
One opponent, of course, is Satan and his minions. All right? But the world is an opponent as well. As Christians, we live or should be living differently, thinking differently, everything differently because of who we are in Christ. So there will be opposition. Work together as a team. So in this idea, Paul exhorts them to live like Christ, okay? And this unity in Christ. So in chapter 2, verse 1, so if, the way that is, is it's the assumption, it's the understanding that this is the way it is, okay? Any encouragement in Christ, okay? Christ's life is an encouragement for us. Any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, since there's the Spirit working and helping and working with us, any affection or sympathy and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Okay, remember, this is a colony. This are citizens of a different place, a different king, a different ruler. Okay, for them, it's Rome, but for us, it's heaven, it's Christ. Okay, so we want to be in unison together because we're of the same group. And he says, being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also for the interests of others. See, when you're in a colony, you're, you're kind of like, I mean, think of, think of the colonists that came over from England, okay? Jamestown and, and those who were coming into an environment they'd never been before. You had to hold together. You had to not just think of yourself. It didn't work, okay? United we stand, divided we fall. So you unite and you work together and you don't be self-centered. You look out for the community. You look out for each other. You look out for others, okay? Have this mind among yourselves, verse 5, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or heldly, uh, tightly held, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So, Jesus is our example, okay? And this emptying out of self, dying to self, living for Christ, that is the goal, all right? Paul talks about how God's purpose for us is to be conformed into the image of Christ. By the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, bit by bit, day by day, moment by moment, we are being changed into the likeness of Christ, okay? The old man is dead. The new man is being transformed into the image of Christ. That's the goal. So it's this idea of, look, as, body, as a body of believers, we need to, like Christ, empty ourselves, serve one another. Okay? The church today is not a sacrificial community. For the most part, the church today is very much, what can you offer me? What programs do you have? What things do you have? What can I get? That's not the way body life is supposed to be. Body life is serving one another, for that is what Christ has done for us. It's also to live as lights in the world. Okay? Going down to verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation in fear and trembling, okay? 
And this is not working for your salvation. All right. This is not salvation by works. The word for workout is a word that we use like to work out a math problem. You see it to its logical conclusion where it needs to go. Okay. Work out the problem. Now, it was a word that was used for working out a mine or a field. Okay. So what you would do is you would work out everything that you possibly could from the mine or from the field. You made sure that the yield was good. All right. So that's what we're supposed to do in our relationship with the Lord and our Christian life. We are supposed to pursue it to its logical conclusion. Christ likeness, what has just come before us in chapter two. I can't do that, not in my own strength, but that's okay because it goes on to say in verse 13, for it is God who works in you. That's the word energon. He gives the power, the ability, okay, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So I have a responsibility to pursue the Lord, to obey the Lord, to yield to the Lord, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And the Lord will work in me and give me the power and the ability to do that which he's called me to do. I love the fact that God does not say, all right, this is what I have for you and you're on your own to figure it out. He gives us the Holy Spirit to enable us to do that which he's called us to do. Our responsibility and his ability. You can't lose. So with this in mind, verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. So here's that colony idea again. So we're here and the world around us is messed up. So they want, the Bible tells us that we want to have a life that is very, very different from what they see out in the world, okay? In this crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Jesus said, let your light so shine before all men that they may see your good works, your good conduct, your good life, and bring glory to your Father in heaven. Jesus talked about the city on the hill that cannot be hidden. For me, I remember one night I was on the Sea of Galilee and I was up on the North Shore and um, not too far from Capernaum. And the sun had gone down and you could look out across the lake. So you're looking out to the south and on the right hand side, there's a city on a hill. It's Tiberius and it's all lit up. And it just makes me think about this amidst of all the darkness. There's the city on the hill. If you were out on the lake and you were wondering where you needed to go to find a safe place to be, you could go to the light. If you were lost and you were out, you know, in the hills and stuff and you could see the light, you knew where to go. We are a city on a hill. The church is supposed to be able to be that beacon, that lighthouse that the world can go. I don't know where to go. And those waves are tossing me all over the place and I'm lost and I'm going to be shipwrecked. And they see the light and they go, that's the safe harbor. And they come into a colony a band of believers who are representatives of the kingdom of God and they see a different world, a different life, a different way, a different joy, a different peace, a different everything. And they go, I want to be a part of this community. I want a passport. I want citizenship. How do I become a part of the colony? Because they see Christ in us. They see a light. They see something different. Chapter 3, the pursuit of Christ. There was so much coming into Philippi, and Paul warned of the false teachings. Okay? He says in verse 2, Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. 
For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And the Judaizers were coming in saying, you know, you have to be a Jew. You have to keep the law. You have to do this. You have to do that. You have to be circumcised. And putting all this baggage onto the people in Philippi. And so Paul's going, no, no, don't let them rob you. Beware of these people coming in. And he gives himself as an example and says, look, as far as the law is concerned, I am the poster child. I had it all, okay? But it doesn't matter. And look at what he says to them. He says in verse seven, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He was a Benjamite. He was a Pharisee. He studied under Gamaliel. That was like, he, Gamaliel was like the prominent rabbi of the time. His school was the school to go to if you were a priest and a Pharisee. He had a good pedigree. He was a Roman citizen. He had everything you could possibly want or need. And he says, I count it as loss for the sake of Jesus. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. There's nothing more valuable than an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Nothing better. Nothing more gratifying or fulfilling. Nothing else that will satisfy. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. The word there is dung, okay? Dung. That's what it is. It's all just dung compared to Jesus. In order that I might gain Christ, He's not talking about salvation. He's talking about gaining that more intimate understanding of him and be found in him, anchored in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him. And that's that personal gnosis. It's that experiential, relational knowledge of Jesus Christ, okay? It's a relationship that I may know him. And the power of his resurrection. We saw this in Colossians. This is the power that makes changes, overcomes obstacles and resistance. Paul wanted the power of Christ flowing through his life without anything getting in the way. He didn't want the, the dung. He didn't want all the garbage and all the weights and encumbrances and stuff. He just wants Jesus purely and completely. And then I may share in his suffering, becoming like him. That's the goal in his death. What, what's that becoming like him in his death? He emptied himself out. He totally abandoned himself for the will of the Father. And that's how we need to be, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. What does that mean? The Greek is by any means I may attain, grab hold of the resurrection out of the dead, out of the dead life, out of the dead works, out of the dead ways of the world. Okay, so for us as Christians, we want to be living in a way and have a relationship with the Lord where our lives are constantly being transformed to where the world and its ways and our desires and all of that have less and less of a hold on us and that old man stays in the grave. You know, I think that's where the idea of zombies came from is just our old sinful nature because he's dead, but man, it just keeps wanting to grab hold of my leg and pull me back, you know? No, it's dead. I want to be out of that. I want no place in that old life and in that old world. I'm a colonist. I'm a citizen of heaven. And Paul says, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect. I haven't gotten there. Perfect being mature, okay? I haven't grown up fully, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. I don't know why they interpreted it that way, all right? It works, but it's weak, okay? 
I love the way the King James, New King James, NASB says it. I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. Press on means to chase down, to pursue hard after. To take hold means to run to ground. It means to tackle. So Paul's saying, I chase after that and tackle the very thing for which Christ tackled me. The very reason why Jesus grabbed a hold of me. Was it just to be saved and go to heaven? No. It was to have relationship. This is eternal life, Jesus said, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Relationship and conformity into the image of Christ. That's what this is about. And it doesn't just happen in heaven, it's here and now. So Paul's saying, I'm not there yet, but I am chasing after it and I'm seeking to tackle it and make it my own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, all my works, all my achievements, all my failures, everything, and straining forward, that means your eyes are seeing further than your hand or foot can attain, okay? So you're striving forward beyond your reach for something, okay? I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. Press on to the goal of the upward call in Christ Jesus. What's the call in Christ Jesus? Christ-likeness. Conformity into the image of the Son of God. Intimacy with the Lord. The prize is the call. The call is the prize. There is nothing greater than intimacy with Christ. Nothing greater than having his Holy Spirit transform us into his likeness. There's nothing better. That's the prize. And it makes me think of anybody seen chariots of fire? Okay. A few people. Okay. There's a scene in there where Eric Little, he's running the 400, okay, the 400 meter dash. And he's the favorite to win. And so one of the other runners hits him as he gets out of the starting block, knocks him down and out of the track. And the rest of the runners keep going. And then the really cool music starts and everything. But he looks at where he's at, where people are at, and he gets up and he starts running with everything he has. And there's one person watching and says to his trainer, he'll never make it. And the trainer says, don't you believe it? His head's not back yet. He hasn't gone 100% yet. He's not all out. And then you see him and his, he had a weird way of running, okay? Um, if you ever want to read a good biography, read Eric Little's story. Phenomenal man of God. But he hits his stride, his head goes back, and he blows by everybody. And he wins despite what had happened at the starting blocks. And as Christians, we're tempted to remember what lay behind. Our failures, our shortcomings our screw-ups, our doubts, our fears. Forget about them. The Bible talks about how great is the faithfulness of God. His mercies are new every morning. It's a new day. Get up and run. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. Though he fall, he will not be cast utterly headlong, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. So forget the past. This is something I struggle with because I have a lot of screw-ups, a lot of failures, from ministry to family to everything else, okay? And this encourages me to where in Christ I can forget that and go, that was then, this is now, Lord, work in me to will and to work according to your good pleasure, and let's run. Pursue that for which Christ has called us. And then as citizens, 
And going into chapter 4, prayer and focusing on Christ. Verse 8. Finally, or I'm sorry, verse, uh, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness, that means humility and gentleness, going back to what we saw about Christ in chapter 2, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. They were expecting Christ to come back, the rapture to happen anytime. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever's true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, Think about these things. What have you learned and received and heard and seen in me? Practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. Colony life. Pursuing Christ. Pursuing him, his will, his ways. Bringing our life into a manner that is worthy of Christ. Not in that we have to be worthy, we're not. But one that exemplifies a citizen of the kingdom of God. That's the way we're supposed to be. Now, if you turn over to 1 Timothy, we see some of the logistics involved for the church life. Okay? Timothy was a young man. And he was left in Ephesus by Paul because there were some issues, like any place. There were problems. And there were false teachings and false doctrines and false teachers coming in. And so Paul is encouraging him to help get things set right as far as doctrine and leadership. He says in verse 3, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, that you may charge certain persons, not to name anybody, but certain persons, not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. That sincere, that means an unblemished faith, okay? It was a word that was used, like if you were a, uh, if you worked in stone and marble and you made statues and you had one for sale, somebody would ask you, is this sincere? It means without wax, okay? Because what would happen is the, craftsman would be working on the statue and make a mistake uh-oh now hopefully like the nose doesn't fall off or something like that but what they would do is they would take powdered uh stone mix it with wax and fill in the error okay uh, my son used to work in in carpet uh carpentry and construction and he said um uh Oh, goodness, now I'm drawing a blank. Basically, it's like, in God we trust, with all else use caulk, or something like that, okay? It's like, you can cover any screw-up in construction with caulk. And that's what they did with the statues. So if you had a sincere faith, it was solid. It didn't have stuff mixed in with it. It was pure. It was sincere, okay? So a sincere faith... Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, getting way off track, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. They don't know what they're talking about. You need to deal with them, Timothy. And what I think is so cool here, as he's encouraging Timothy Paul gives himself as an example down in verse 12. 
And to me, I think this is such an encouragement for me as I think it was for Timothy. Because he says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul could look at himself and he's encouraging Timothy and he says, you know, I was a blasphemer. I persecuted the church. I was insolent. I was an opponent of Christ and all. But God gave me mercy. And you see in Paul such a love for Christ, a love for the word of God, a love for sound, solid doctrine and the well-being of the saints because of the grace and love that he received, though he was, as he saw himself, the chief of sinners. And I look at this and, you know, I came to Christ at an early age. I was six years old. So I don't have the ability to look back and go, man, I remember when I did this and I was such a screw up and I did that and I did this. And then look at the grace of God toward me and saving somebody like me. I was a kid. But I can look back over the course of my life and see my disobedience to the Lord, see my sins, see my screw ups, see my resistance to him and despite it he still showed me mercy he still led me to repentance he still brought me home and I can look at that and go wow and I was chewing on that this morning it's like you've never abandoned me you've never dropped me You've always been there and you've let me do things despite my failures. And I think it's important for us to always reflect upon what Christ has done for us. Think about what we were. Think about what we've done. And think about the mercy and grace and kindness of Jesus Christ and go, oh my word. Because there's that sense of appreciation for the love of God toward us, which gives us encouragement and also humility. It's important because we're going to see that being a part here as Christians, a life of humility toward those that are outside the colony, if you will. Okay. Verse 18, he says to young Timothy, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. Prophecies have been made over Timothy. Spiritual gifts, prophecy being one of them, is to build up the body of Christ. And we see that here. Timothy was in a tough spot. He was being despised because he was young. But he was mature in the Lord. And there were prophecies made about him. And Paul says, you remember those. You remember what God told you. And you anchor in and you rely on those and fight the good fight. Fight the good warfare. And I think about, for me, there, were, there was a gal, um, she led my mom to the Lord, her name was Peggy, and she had the gift of prophecy, she had the gift of knowledge. And when I was a little kid, 
there was me and one other girl. Her name was Vera. And at one of the prayer meetings, Peggy prophesied over us that we would go to a particular college. Didn't remember it, didn't think about it, forgot about it, so did Vera. When I went to college, I found out that Vera was going to the same college. And we connected. And our family had gone back to see friends and stuff, and Peggy was one of them. And she said, do you remember that I said that God was going to put the two of you there? And it's like, no. And then it was clicked. It's like, oh, yeah. And God used her to encourage me in my walk with the Lord over the years. I would call her up sometimes and say, Peggy, I just need prof. I mean, I need prayer. I just, I'm, I'm dealing with trying to figure out what God wants to do. And sometimes she would just listen. Sometimes she would just pray. And sometimes the Lord would give me a word of encouragement. And it was wonderful when I was making big decisions. The Holy Spirit working through his people to encourage and build up his people. Body life. And so part of body life, chapter 2, pray. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, even people we don't like, okay, all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to know the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom of all, for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed as a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith, and truth. I desire then that every that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands, sanctified, set apart hands, without anger or quarreling. Living the life, being sincere, okay? Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel. Okay, likewise women should pray too. We know that. We've seen in other books that Letters that Paul wrote, women pray in the church, okay? That they should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with that which is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, Okay? This causes a lot of ruffled feathers, all right? This is about authority structure. And just keep this in mind. Jesus is under the authority of the Father. The Holy Spirit is under the Son. Authority and structure is a part of the Trinity. It is a part of the heavenly kingdom. And it is a part of the church, okay? And when it talks about teaching, it is continually teaching. Does it mean that you know, somebody like um, uh, Ann Graham uh, Lotz, okay, Billy Graham's daughter, can't come into a church and teach on a Sunday, say something? No, it doesn't mean that. But it means that a woman can't have the role of a pastor, okay, or an elder. Why? Because we're going to see you have to be the husband of one wife. Hmm. In this culture, somebody could take a, take offense at that or say it's like well you know you can have same sex and all that stuff no it's the husband of one wife so it's basically just authority structure okay and when it says that she remained quiet again we already know from what we've seen in scripture women could prophesy in church women could pray in church it's not being quiet it's the same word peaceable that we see back in chapter two okay verse two and so it's that peaceableness, not quarreling. The men aren't supposed to be quarreling either. Okay, this isn't just one-sided. Women are supposed to be acting appropriately. Men are supposed to be acting appropriately when they pray and seek the Lord. Okay? And then 
He goes on and says, for Adam was formed first, there's the authority structure, then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. I'm not touching it. Okay. Why? Because we don't have time. And there are so many speculations. It's not worth it. It's not talking about salvation. Okay. Just straight up. It's just authority structures, okay? And now we hit that within the leadership of the church. Chapter three, you like the way I segue that real quick? All right, the saying is trustworthy, all right? And it goes on and talks about if anyone aspires to be the office of overseer, okay? Episcopos, overseer, all right? It says, verse two, they must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, and understand respectable is not just within the church, outside too. Hospitable, able to teach. This differentiates an elder from a pastor. Able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that may, he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Be it elder, be it deacon, be it pastor... There are those within the church that have a good reputation in the church, but outside the church walls, the reputation in the community is not good. There are Christians who, when they're within the walls of the church, have a great reputation. When they step outside the church walls, their reputation stinks. And I pastored a church that I learned at the end of that time there that the reason why people didn't want to have anything as far as the community that we were in the reason why they didn't want to have anything to do with the church was because the leadership primarily had a great reputation in the walls, but in the community, and it was a small community, their reputation stunk. So it doesn't matter what our reputation is within the walls alone. What are we like out there? Are we hypocrites or are we genuine here and at home, here and at work, here and in our neighborhoods, here and in the grocery store. Because the world outside is looking at the colony to see if it's really different, okay? We see three different things that are talked about as far as leaders. In Timothy, Paul addresses the episkopos, and the diaconos, the deacons, okay? Deacons' requirements are somewhat similar. They don't have to be teachers. And then in Titus, it talks about the elders, the presbytos, okay? So the way the leadership in the church is designed is you have the pastors, okay? You have elders who undergird and help the pastors do the work and lead the church, and the deacons who help in carrying out those things and helping the body of Christ hands-on, so to speak, okay? So, that's what you have. From there, there's come different types of church leadership. Episcopos, Episcopal, Episcopalian, okay, is where the pastor, the bishop, oversees the church and calls the shots. Presbytos, Presbyterian, is where the elders call the shots, okay, of the church. So those are two types. Much later in church history came a third type, congregational rule, where the pastor and the elders have ideas, they think about them, pray about them, and then they take them to the body to vote on them. And if the body votes on them, and says, yay, it's done, if they say nay, it's not. Or it goes back around for another vote and such, okay? 
So those are the three primary types of church government that you see. There is another form that we see in scripture that remember the early church is based upon a lot of the Old Testament ways of doing things. Israel was under a theocracy, God, Moses, and the elders. And they led the people and they cared for the people. God, the judges, cared for the people. When it worked properly, God, the king, counselors or elders, and the people. As God is the head of Israel, Christ is the head of the church. And so what we see is that the leadership is Christ is our head. The pastors, the elders help facilitate the things that God has given to the pastors. And then they lead and feed and nurture the body. Okay. So those are the four types of church leadership that exist today. All right. So two are based off of positions of leaders. One is based off of congregation. One is based off of theocracy. Okay. And so that's how that's laid out. So each person has a particular role if they are an overseer and uh a uh, elder or a deacon, okay, and the leading of the church. And then Paul goes on and he talks about, okay, this is how you guys are supposed to live. And he's talking about the family dynamics, husbands treating wives, wives treating husbands, similar things that we saw in Ephesians and such, okay? Employers and employees, those type of things, how we live. And then over in Titus, we hit on this a little bit more. Titus chapter 1, verse 5 is the qualifications of the presbyters, the elders, okay? There were problems. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So Paul has given authority to Titus to look at the men that are there in Crete and he appoints the elders of the churches that are in Crete, okay? And so they help bring order to Crete. And Crete was a mess, all right? Not just the church, but just the whole place was just crazy. So, verse 6, If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers, and they are not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer, that's the Episcopos, I think of Joe Piscopo, okay, Episcopos, all right, if you're old enough to remember or sports stuff and stuff like that, he was big into that. But anyway, uh, I digress badly. Um, but for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm and to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Okay? So you have people who are making a buck, and this was also what um, Timothy was dealing with at Ephesus, false teachers coming in, making a buck off of the gospel, not to be done. Deal with the teaching. And then... He goes on and he talks about how believers are supposed to live. You know, verse 2, chapter 2, Older men, be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. 
They are to teach what is good and to train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, a good life. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. And then bond servants, how they serve their masters and such. We've already seen that in Ephesus. So to wrap this up, Look at what Paul gives Timothy to give the body there in Crete. Chapter 3, verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. There is a tendency for Christians in the church to look down upon sinners. To look down upon those who have fallen in sin. To have a holier-than-thou mindset. And it hurts people. Are we supposed to just let any sin go and, hey, you know what, we're just going to be loving and tolerate anything? No, we know that's not the case. We address sin. But there needs to be a gentleness and a love and a concern and a mercy and grace because, you know what, that's what we were. That's what I am. I still screw up. I still sin. I still disobey the Lord. I am not where I want to be. I have not attained what Christ has for me. I'm pressing onward. But may we never look down on people. They're just lost and, and screwed up and everything just like us, just like we were. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by grace, we might become heirs, we've heard that word, according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law, for they're unprofitable and worthless. We'll stop there. As Christians, citizens of heaven, members of the colony of the kingdom of God, let us live a life energized and empowered by the Holy Spirit of God, faithful to the word of God, to live in a manner that brings glory to God, that benefits one another and builds one another up. May it be that when a person walks into the doors of a church, this church, any church, they step into heaven. They step into the kingdom. They see the kingdom heart, the kingdom love, the kingdom holiness. They hear the kingdom worship. They see the kingdom joy, the kingdom peace, which is all centered in the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, our Savior, Jesus Christ. May we have our ambition to know Christ and the power of his resurrection in our lives.